Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 111. Now the Hebrew word chesed, chet samek dalid, is most often understood and translated to mean mercy. The problem is that chesed does not at all carry this meaning in biblical Hebrew. Chesed means fidelity, faithfulness, and covenant loyalty. Shalom. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai. This is episode 111 and part 15, and I am addressing some selected texts of the New Covenant as they relate to the general themes in the texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the region of the Qumran. Let's continue where I left off on the last program. This will be our final episode in this study of Matthew chapter 12. As we learned on the last program, the entire dialogue of Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 It's a dialogue going on between Yeshua and the Pharisees. It is not teaching that Yehovah's laws are to be pushed aside when it comes to someone who might be in need of his mercy and his compassion. Of course, exhibiting Yah's mercy and compassion is essential to demonstrate Yehovah's nature and his love But still, we have to remember that he has a character that demands justice, righteousness, and loyalty. Now, in returning back to the story in Matthew chapter 12 and those first eight verses, we learn that the Pharisees who were among the Judeans accused Yeshua's disciples of lawless behavior when they saw them going through grain fields on the Sabbath and plucking the heads of the grain and eating what they were pulling off of the plants. Thus the Pharisees said to Yeshua in Matthew 12, 2, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. In response, Yeshua spoke to those men about David's actions. And that is recorded for us in Matthew 12, 3. Yeshua says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the lechem hapanim, that is the showbread as it appears in the King James Version, or the lechem hapanim, that is the bread of the faces, which was not lawful for him to eat. It was not even lawful for those who were with him to eat, only for the priests. That's what the text tells us. So I ask, what was Yeshua's point? The answer to the question is what Yeshua said in Matthew 12, verse 7. If you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And uh, some translations might say, I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. And we will come to that in just a moment. 
Again, I desire mercy or loyalty and not sacrifice. So then Yeshua goes on to say, if you had understood that, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the innocent. So from Yeshua's point of view, lawlessness is not defined by man-made determinations. Lawlessness is about disloyalty and breaking covenant with Yehovah. That is called sin. So you see, it was not Yeshua's disciples who were lawless, according to his response to the Pharisees. That is, it was not Yeshua's disciples who were disloyal and breaking covenant with Yehovah. In fact, just the reverse. The Pharisaic religious leaders and the Sadducean Kohanim in the Jerusalem temple, they were in fact the true lawless ones. And the whole lot of them were effectively illegitimate. The Pharisees came out from a religious separatist movement established way back in the second century before the Common Era. And uh, that was in the days of the post-Hashmonaim period of the Maccabees, as the Jews were becoming more and more influenced by Greek and Hellenistic thought, or in the religion and culture of Hellenism. And so the problem that we see is that these Pharisees, and also the Sadducean temple priesthood, they had established themselves as authorized interpreters and teachers and judges and rulers concerning the Mosaic law. And again, I'm referring not just to the Pharisees, but also to the Sadducean priests. They were considered usurpers through political appointments to the office of rulers and judges in Israel. But they were not from the divinely approved line of the house of Tzadok through Aaron, the brother of Moses. It was this house of Tzadok priesthood who preserved so many of the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. So Yeshua insinuated that these Pharisees had taken on a spiritual role that was not authorized for them to take, that their interpreting and teaching of the law, the Torah, was illegitimate. And as far as the Sadducean priesthood was concerned, they too had no authorization to function as judges and rulers and to eat from the table loaves of the temple bread, referred to as lechem hapanim, the bread of the faces, or what is called in some translations, the showbread. And I got to say, this is actually pretty interesting when you compare this to what was written in the New Covenant book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. Here the text says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace or favor, that our salvation is 100% based on what he does for us, not what we can do for him. So then the text goes on to say that we are not to be carried about with these 
various and strange doctrines, and that it is good to be established by Jehovah's grace, but not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And of course, the idea of foods is going back to these various and strange doctrines. They are called foods. In other words, it is food that we eat spiritually. So then the text of Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that would be the priests of the tabernacle, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And that's an interesting concept in light of everything that we're going to talk about today. So taking this into consideration and comparing it to what Yeshua said in Matthew 12, 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the innocent. We should therefore seek to understand this in the context for which it was given that I think that Yeshua was saying, and please allow me to paraphrase this, you self-righteous religious separatists and Jerusalem temple priests who condemn the innocent and are really the ones guilty of lawlessness, meaning guilty of disloyalty and of legal justifications to break Jehovah's covenant law. It is your guilt that is on the line here, not a perceived guilt that you want a place on the shoulders of my students or my disciples. And this pattern of this lawless seizing of religious and spiritual authority in the New Covenant is seen clearly in passages such as what is written about in the book of Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and verses 18 through 20. So let's take a look at the first three verses of Acts chapter 4. Now, as they spoke to the people, referring to Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, they came upon them, that is Peter and John, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead because the Sadducean priesthood did not accept anything involving the resurrection, because for them there was no resurrection. It was just life in the here and now, and you can live a life in the lap of luxury, because what you see is what you get right here in this life. That's what they held to. But that was not the Sadok priesthood of the line of Aaron. They held to the resurrection of the dead. These Sadducees are coming from the Bothusians, and the house of Katros, or the house of Caiaphas. So we read in these first three verses of Acts chapter 4, and they, referring to these priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees and all of these religious authorities, they laid hands on them, referring to Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Hananiah or Annas, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, along with 
Caiaphas or Katros, and also John and Alexander, referring to them as having family relation to the high priest, that is, Annas or Hananiah. They were all gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they set them in the midst or in the middle, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They're essentially saying, well, where'd you get the authority to speak this kind of stuff? Now go over to Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Yeshua. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, I find it interesting that when Peter and John said, quote, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to Elohim or God, you judge It appears to me as a rebuke to them, telling them to cease their disloyalty to Jehovah and his covenant, letting go of the illegitimate authority that they and their fathers seized from the house of Tzedok back 100, 150 years before that time. Or if you prefer, you could put it this way. Peter and John were saying to these usurpers, judge yourselves as to whether you are being loyal to Jehovah's covenant. You judge. Then in verses 23 through 26, Peter and John went to their own community of believers in Yeshua and reported to them all that had happened. And while they were retelling that whole story of the events and of what took place, they quoted David's Psalm 2. So let's take a look at Psalm 2, verse 1, which reads, Why did the goyim rage and the people plot emptiness? Or the Hebrew term gives us the English word vanity. So you see, from Psalm 2, 1, Peter and John were fundamentally calling the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees by the term goyim. Or, if you wish, you could just say they were religious Gentiles. Then in verse 2, they called the national leaders, referring to the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes, they called them kings of the land and even characterized them as self-appointed kings, which, by the way, is a very accurate rendering of Psalm 2-2 from the context of the grammar. The kings of the land establish themselves, and the heavy ones, or the great ones, were gathered as one against Jehovah and against his Messiah. So this hint confirms accurately what I previously thought Peter and John might have been saying when I previously paraphrased for you Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, again, where we read the statement, You judge yourselves according to Jehovah's covenant, meaning judge whether you actually have the right to do what you're doing by taking on the spiritual roles that you have assigned to yourselves or perhaps even purchased for yourselves because the Romans were auctioning off priesthood roles to those who were the highest bidders. So when they say judge yourselves according to Jehovah's covenant, 
It would be referring to the covenant that was part of the Qumran community, House of Sadok. It's their priesthood. And therefore, Peter and John were essentially saying to these current priests and elders and teachers, you are not one of them. So you have no authority. You are empty. You're vain. And you have no authority whatsoever. So this said, let's now tie it all together and connect it to Yeshua's earlier dialogue about David's actions in 1 Samuel 21. Again, let's read Matthew 12, verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not slaughter or sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the innocent, the blameless. And so this idea, I desire mercy or loyalty and not sacrifice, it's coming from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. However, this passage was originally unpacked for us in 1 Samuel 15, 22. And then it's principally repeated again in the book of Micha or Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. So let's take a look at all three texts for a moment, okay? First, let's go to 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has Jehovah delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Jehovah? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. So here the focus is on obey from the Hebrew word shema. Shin, Mem, Ein, Shema. It carries the sense of hearing with the intent to be obedient. Let's go to the second passage that I want to look at. Micha or Micah 6, 6 through 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does Jehovah require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here, I want to show a focus on two words. The first word is that of justice, coming from the Hebrew word mishpat, mem shin pe tet, mishpat. It carries the sense of truthful adjudication or addressing a legal proceeding in and with truth, or essentially making truthful statements. The second word that I want to look at is loyalty. It's coming from the Hebrew word chesed. That's chet, samech, dalid. Chesed. It carries the sense of fidelity and faithfulness. And here you can see this in Hosea 6.6. For I desire chesed and not sacrifice and the knowledge of Elohim more than burnt offerings. So here the focus is on the Hebrew word chesed, which gives us the English word loyalty. Again, it carries the sense of fidelity and faithfulness. Now the Hebrew word chesed, chet samek dalid, is most often understood and translated to mean mercy. The problem is that chesed does not at all carry this meaning in biblical Hebrew. There are other words for mercy. It is not 
chesed. Any respectable scholar of the Hebrew language and any good academic lexicon, it will tell you the true meaning of the word. But putting academic respectability aside, if we simply will allow the clear meaning of ancient paleographic or pictographic Hebrew to define chesed, I will tell you straight up, it's going to show us what this term is all about. That chesed means fidelity, faithfulness, and covenant loyalty. So according to the ancient original paleographic or pictographic Hebrew for chesed, we're going to get the following. The Hebrew letter chet, with its pictographic form that looks kind of like a fence or a boundary. That's exactly what it is. It is like a fence or a boundary to guard and to protect. The second letter in the Hebrew word chesed is that of samech. Now, samech in paleographic or pictographic Hebrew is the image of a big, leafy palm tree. And when you're in Israel, you'll know that when the wind is blowing and howling and it's really a strong wind accompanied by a rainstorm, those palm trees just seem to bend with the wind. They rarely will break. They just stay with it. They kind of go with the flow. So the idea of the pictographic summit, it is pregnant with a meaning that indicates a tree that is able to sustain anything. It is something that's sturdy, that has staying power. And then the third letter in this word chesed is the pictographic form of a door that is delet. It's an entrance opening that is hinged to a support beam or a support wall. So it's strong. It's sturdy. So when we join the three letters of this root together, chet, samech, dalid, chesed. The picture of chesed is one that is fenced in, sustained and supported like a door that is hinged to a solid wood or stone frame. The word chesed gives us the Hebrew model of loyalty and a sworn obligation to stay steadfastly true to a covenant through love. Beginning with Genesis 12, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with all Israel, this covenant is defined by Jehovah as unshakable, unmovable, steadfast, unwavering, and fully resolute. So Jehovah's commitment to us is called covenant chesed, covenant loyalty, an expression of his forever love. And we can see it very clearly in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire fidelity and faithfulness and covenant loyalty, not sacrifice. This is exactly what Yeshua quoted in that story as he is having this lengthy dialogue between his words and those of the Pharisees. However, I want you to keep in mind that this account from Hosea 6.6 is preceded by Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, just a couple of verses before, which translates the same Hebrew word chesed as faithfulness and not mercy. 
O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness, that is, chesed, your fidelity, your faithfulness, your covenant loyalty, is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Yeah, you know, in the morning when the sun comes up and all that fresh dew on grass and on plants, it just sort of melts away with the rising sun. That is how Yeshua and Yehovah are describing the loyalty of Judah and Ephraim together. It's just showing you that loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness, that these are correct ideas for the term chesed. So within this context, we're going to come back to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And let's have a real close look at this. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Welcome back to the second half of Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 111. Here is your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Okay, welcome back. This is Real Israel Talk Radio. And I'm Avi ben Mordechai. Thanks for joining me. Just before the break, I was talking about the pictographic symbolism or imagery of the Hebrew word chesed, showing you that it really has nothing to do with mercy by itself, because mercy is expressed in Hebrew with some other different Hebrew words. But it's not this word. This word chesed deals with covenant loyalty. So within the context of Yeshua's dialogue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, comparing the loyalty of his disciples with the loyalty of David, as he gives that example in Matthew 12, 1 through 8, Yeshua quotes Hosea 6, 6 again, I desire fidelity, faithfulness, and covenant loyalty, and not sacrifice. However, the religious separatists who condemned Yeshua's disciples for their unlawful violations of the Sabbath, which is all referring to their oral interpretations and customs and traditions on how to interpret the law against working on the Sabbath, you see, they were all functionally embracing a double standard. And in doing so, they were acting with covenant disloyalty. Largely speaking, they were saying, and I'll give you my paraphrase here, the oral law of us Judeans explains Jehovah's covenant law of loyalty. For us, our religion is not about what Jehovah does for us. No, it's about what we do for Jehovah, or what we do for Hashem. Therefore, Yeshua responds to that kind of stuff in Matthew 12, 7. And once again, he says, if you had known what this means, referring to this covenant loyalty, you would not have condemned the guiltless or the innocent. So on these grounds, Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. And again, I'm going to give you my paraphrase based on how I might read this in Hebrew if Matthew 12, 6 were in Hebrew. 
Here's how I would understand it. Yet I say to you that here in this place, there is greatness, something colossal, the house. Now, I'm not certain that the Pharisees and Sadducees understood exactly what he was saying. However, for those who would have understood are those who had ears to hear what really happened in the story of Jacob while he was on his journey to Haran. Toward the end of the day, as it grew dark, he grew tired and he just stopped and he lay down to sleep. So we pick up the text in Genesis 28, 16 through 17. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Jehovah is in this place, and I did not know. And he was afraid and said, How awesome! This is the place. In Hebrew, Hamakum, no other than the house of Elohim. And this, referring to this one, he is the gate or the door of heaven. Well, he had a vision of the Messiah, the Word. And so, with Yeshua's statement in Matthew 12, 6, I think he was making a significant reference to the declaration from Jacob in saying, Yet I say to you that here, in this place, there is greatness, something colossal, the house, that is Habait. And then he went on to say in Matthew 12, verse 8, For the Son of Man is the master of the Sabbath. Now, from the local context, I would ask you, why did Yeshua choose a saying like this? What did he mean, saying, For the Son of Man is the master of the Sabbath? For answers to these questions, at least as I would understand the overall context, I want to take a look at the two statements that he makes here. He says, the Son of Man, and he says, the Master of the Sabbath. So first, let's take a look at Exodus 31, 16-17. Therefore the sons of Israel shall keep or guard the Sabbath to do or observe the Sabbath throughout their generations a forever covenant, which, by the way, those of you who can read Hebrew and you know some of these words that keep coming up over and over again in the Hebrew text, this statement, a forever covenant, can also be read from Hebrew as a covenant of shining radiance, coming from the Hebrew word alum, where do you think we get the English word illuminate? I think it's from a loom. And I'm not a linguist of the English language. I'm just making connections by what I understand from the Hebrew text. So Jehovah goes on to say, Between me and between the sons of Israel, she, that's referring to the Sabbath because it's feminine. She is a sign of perpetuity, or she is a sign of forever, which is once again the very same Hebrew word that I spoke to you about here about a forever covenant. That is, the Sabbath can also be read as a sign 
of shining radiance. So now let's take a look at these ideas. First, when Yeshua says, for the Son of Man is the master of the Sabbath, let's understand the concept of the Son of Man. In Matthew 12, 8, Yeshua identified himself as the Son of Man, or in Hebrew, the Son of Adam. However, in Aramaic, which is a very close sister language to Hebrew, the term Son of Man or Son of Adam would be Bar Enosh, Bar Enosh. And quite literally, this means a son of sickness or illness, Anash. This tells me clearly that this is imagery from Isaiah 53, a prophecy of the loyal and coming just one who carries the purity, the perfection, the innocence of the suffering servant Messiah. So when Yeshua said, the Son of Man is the master of the Sabbath, it would be my understanding that he is speaking about the sign of Messiah's covenant loyalty as it relates to Israel. Now, please permit me to explain, okay? And I want to do so by taking the second half of that statement that he said. The Son of Man is the master of the Sabbath. So let's talk about the Sabbath for a moment. According to Torah, doing or keeping the Sabbath is a sign of being covenanted or set apart to Yehovah, as Yehovah is likewise covenanted or set apart to us. You see, Yeshua and Paul repeated the lesson many times in such places as John 16.13 or Ephesians 1.13-21 and many more places like that. My friends, Sabbath observance is not about stopping just so you can take a day off from work. That's not what it's about. And if you think that's what it's about, you need to change your perspective. In Hebrew, Sabbath means rest, Shabbat. But what kind of rest? Physical? Spiritual? A little bit of each? You see, before the fall of Adam, it reveals a difference between the six days of creative work in the creation story and the seventh day of ceasing from that creative work in the creation story. That's before the fall of Adam. After the fall of Adam, the Sabbath takes on a richer, deeper meaning, which is that of rectifying or repairing the curse from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, which is due to the consequences of Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Said differently, after the fall of Adam, the Sabbath, which is a feminine concept in Hebrew, she is a sign of redemptive covenant loyalty. Remember, it was Hava, it was the woman that started that whole nasty ball rolling by covenanting with the serpent. So Yehovah has to go back and 
repair all of that stuff that happened. So said differently, after the fall of Adam, the Sabbath, which is a feminine concept in Hebrew, it is a sign of redemptive covenant loyalty. Put another way, the seventh day sign of the Sabbath and its principle of rest. It draws a separation line, a demarcation line. It draws a special division between death and life, according to Genesis 3, 17-19. Now, with the launching of the new covenant in Yeshua, those who choose to receive that new covenant are then identified and celebrated with the Sabbath bride who forever remains connected to her master and her husband, the Word, because he is the husband, the master, the owner of the Sabbath. Let me try to put it just a bit differently. You see, the bride of the Word, that's the Spirit and the bride, it's intertwined or interwoven with the Sabbath rest because the two become one. That is, husband and wife, groom and bride, they become one. They're intertwined. They're interconnected. They've always existed, the Spirit and the bride. But here's the great beauty of the new covenant. When we believe by trusting faith, we are brought into that covenant. We're brought into it and we're made to partake of that covenant coming in from the outside and brought into something that already was in place long before we ever came on the scene. We're given an entrance into that covenant. We're made to be identified with it. And that is the beauty of the new covenant. And Paul uses the idea of our adoption, which is accurately correct, okay? So Yehovah is giving us this symbolism of a transfer from the law of sin and death to the law of life and good in the Spirit, which is connected to the Sabbath. Now, hang on, I'm not done yet. The guarantee of that transfer that takes place in the New Covenant picture that is the picture or the image of our eternal Father, the one that Yeshua says is your Father and my Father. He is the one who pays a bride price into a trust until our great last day resurrection, which will take place in our future. It has not yet happened. Yeshua went through it as the firstborn of that resurrection. But our day is coming. And at that time, when we go into that great last day resurrection, something that Paul calls in the twinkling of an eye, you remember that stuff? At that time, at that last day great resurrection, then you and I and all of us who are faithful and loyal to Yah's covenant— we will then enter into all the fullness of Yehovah's kingdom wealth. In other words, we're going to have access to all of that wealth 
between the bride and the groom, that is, the Spirit and the Word. We're going to get all of that. That is what's going to happen with us. Now, a remnant of this biblical truth is still with us today among many cultures. Let me show you what I mean by that. The moment a future groom pledges his future bride his covenant loyalty. In Judaism, it is called by the Hebrew term erosin. The pledge is usually secured through his giving of the gift of an engagement ring. That's not the bride price. That's just a token gift, the engagement ring. This establishes covenant loyalty between the two parties. That is, the future husband and the future bride. Similarly, through Jehovah's pledge and with his guaranteeing gift, he is essentially declaring to each of us, I will remain loyal and covenant faithful and set apart to you, and I am expecting you to remain covenant faithful and set apart to me until I come to take you into my home, and then you will take my name, which in Hebrew is called the ceremony of the Nisuin, that is the lifting up or the taking away of the bride. And that taking away of the bride is the great last day resurrection. By accepting the declaration of his covenant loyalty, what is happening? Yehovah gives us a down payment gift in order to secure our covenant loyalty. That gift is the Spirit of the Holy One, or if you prefer, the Holy Spirit. By accepting His marital intention and His gift, our response to Him is to then prove our loyalty to Him. Yeah, we should be proving it. Show Him that we indeed are going to remain loyal. Well, how should we be doing that? By wearing, in a sense, the sign of his covenant loyalty, meaning we're going to wear, if you'd like to put it that way, or keep and do his Sabbaths, all of them, because all of his Sabbaths is divine imagery that shows him our covenant loyalty to him. We should be guarding his Sabbaths. That is how we prove our loyalty. And this was the prophet Haggai's message to the Kohen or priest Zerubbabel, as it is explained for us from the Hebrew text in Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. Here it is. According to the word that I covenanted with all of you, when all of you came out of Egypt, so my ruach or spirit stands up within all of you. She stands up within all of you, meaning I will raise all of you up through her in a third day resurrection. That's the end day's resurrection from the dead. It's coming, folks. It's coming. Don't let anybody tell you that's a bunch of nonsense. It's going to happen. And that is our proof of loyalty to believe that and accept that. So he says, do not fear. But let's take the converse relationship to that. If we change the terms of the sign of Yehovah's covenant loyalty, and we replace it with 
a novel system of new religious authority, customs, and man-made laws, well, we are in no certain terms behaving in a manner that shows covenant disloyalty. The Pharisees of the Jewish Second Commonwealth and the Sadducees of the Jerusalem Temple, all of them were fundamentally saying to Yehovah, and I'm going to give you a paraphrase here, we dictate the terms of our covenant loyalty with you, and it's our way or the highway, to use a modern-day idiom. You see, I believe that this is what we are seeing in Matthew chapter 12 and the first eight verses in that dialogue between Yeshua and his opponents. Yehovah looked at the hearts and the actions of all those religious leaders, and he called their actions disloyal. They were in disloyalty. They were breakers of the covenant. And to this very day, he is still testing our covenant loyalty. Oh, yes, he is. And we want to come out proving to him that we will remain loyal to the covenant. One way to do that is to keep and guard his Sabbaths. And not just any Sabbaths. It has to be the Sabbaths that he declares according to his word, not according to man-made traditions and rules and customs and laws. The Sabbaths that we are to be following is what's identified in the Book of Jubilees. That was the Tzadok calendar Sabbaths. I absolutely am convinced of this. And this is what Scripture speaks to. Let's look at Hosea 6.4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness, the Hebrew word is chesed, that is, for your covenant loyalty is like a morning cloud and like an early dew, it goes away. Now look at Psalm 95, verses 10 through 11. For 40 years I grieved with that generation and said, a people wandering or going astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I affirmed in my anger, they will not enter my Sabbath rest, meaning they're not going to enter into the spirit which will resurrect them at the Sabbath of the end of the days. Now, Hebrews 4, 10 through 11. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as Elohim or God from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter his Sabbath rest, to enter his seventh day, to walk in his spirit, which is intertwined with the Sabbath rest which belongs to the master of the Sabbath. This idea is something that I will be addressing in greater detail in an upcoming program. The biblical concept of Shavuot, or what is called Pentecost, is the scheduled day of our great last day or third day resurrection, as Paul rightly understood it. It is a mirror image of the day of the last shofar, or the last trump. On that day, we will be taken up into a messianic sukkah in the kingdom of Messiah. 
In Hebrew, the term sukkah, which comes from the Hebrew word tzchach, carries the meaning of weaving in a way that describes A, being interlaced or entangled with B. The Feast of Tabernacles is about marital unity, two becoming interlaced, entangled, and intertwined as one. But this absolutely depends on loyalty or fidelity between both parties to the covenant. This is what the biblical Sabbath represents. Then the writer goes on to say, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And the word fall there is going into death, not life. All this explains the concept of Yeshua's statement, for the Son of Man is the master or the husband of the Sabbath, or if you will, the master or husband of the Spirit, defining what Matthew 12, 1 through 8 is speaking about. Okay? Now, I want to thank you for joining me today in finishing up this word from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and these closing verses 7 and 8. You've been listening to episode 111 and part 15 of my multi-part series on some selected New Covenant texts that I perceive have some candid connections to the teachings of the House of Tzedok and the Qumran texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, including that of the Book of Jubilees. If you have any questions or comments about any of these programs, oh, please do navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. Yah willing, I'll see you next week. Be blessed. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. And this is Real Israel Talk Radio.